Thank you, Christian. And good morning, everyone. And welcome to you. Glad you're uh, here this morning to worship with us. What a, what a joy and what a privilege it is. And I, um, I just never cease to be so thankful for the, the way God has provided for us through the years. And uh, now this, this beautiful setting. So what a, what a gracious uh, um, place for us to be and, and what a joyful place for us to be as we conclude this book. And uh, hopefully you have had the opportunity to be reading through First Peter as uh, Pastor Bill has been walking us uh, through this book. And if you have, or even if just you have been paying close attention to the themes of the messages uh, in these chapters, no doubt you uh, probably discovered along the way that uh, First Peter has been a difficult or a challenging book for we as, as God's followers uh, to embrace. Um, if you remember back to some of the themes, uh, some of the prominent themes that we have covered in this book are themes like um, persecution, um, trials, submission, three, by the way, of my favorite subjects, uh, and, and so God has encouraged us through Peter's writing, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, how to function through these difficult things. Thankfully, Peter included an additional theme uh, through the pages of his letter, and that theme was a theme of hope. Now, when the Bible speaks of the word hope, it's not this uh, sort of a wishy-washy uh, idea that sometimes we may use the word today. That is, I hope so, but with a lack of certainty. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of certainty. It speaks of assurance. It speaks of the confirmations of things not yet seen. And so Peter, through the... Uh, the midst of dealing with their trials, their hardships, their persecutions, through their um, constant exhortations to be submissive to government authorities, slaves to masters, wives and husbands, uh, and even one another through the church, that theme, Peter says, could only take place if we first exercise a spirit of humility in our relationship with God. He also says that as he concludes this letter, we have the opportunity not only to get through these difficult times victoriously and obediently, but we can go through them joyfully because of the future exaltation and, yes, even glory that awaits us on the other side. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way, to the Romans. He said, our present suffering, in chapter 8, he said, our present suffering cannot be compared to the glory that awaits us in the presence of Jesus Christ. So that hope, that expectation, that anticipation enables us, as Peter concludes in this final portion to get through those difficult periods of suffering and persecution and trials 
and hardship. So with that introduction, let's dive right in, shall we? Uh, Peter gives us, in fact, three principles. Uh, thank you, brother. So you could see you could see my face my face better now. So you could all you could blame Ricky for that. If you could see me better now, you could blame Ricky. Thanks, brother. <clears throat> so let's uh, let's dive in, shall we? Peter reminds us of three principles that we need to cling to in order to help us get through the hurdles of life, not only uh, to survive them, but to be victorious in them, knowing that there is glory and exaltation awaiting us on the other side. Okay, principle number one, be humble knowing that God cares for you. Be humble knowing that God cares for you. Now, last week in the previous section, Bill introduced this theme of humility in relationship to our um, uh, dealings with one another as a church family. Between elders and members of the church, uh, we are to be humble in our relationship toward one another. In fact, Peter in verse 5 says that we are to be clothed in humility, an image that Peter uses that describes the fact that humility is that which should describe us from head to toe. We are to be clothed in humility in our relationship with one another. Now when we get to verse 6, which is the first verse of the text today, he tells us how we are able to do that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. If we are going to be clothed in humility with our dealings one with another, Peter says the secret in being able to do that is first being able to be humble in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, I remind you um, of the word humility is not, uh, don't think of it as necessarily uh, thinking poorly of ourselves or demeaning ourselves, but rather it has an accurate assessment of, of who we are. Okay, it, it doesn't mean that we have to think poorly of ourselves, but as Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, he says, think not only of your own personal self-interest, but also for the interests of others. So it is, a, it is a perspective that focuses not merely on yourself, but on others as well. Now, as Peter wrote this, I could just imagine, slip yourself into Peter's sandals for a moment, as he's writing on the, the need to be humble one toward another, and, and first and foremost, to be humble under the mighty hand of God, I could wonder about the, uh, the number of memories that was uh, flooding Peter's mind as he wrote about the theme of humility. Perhaps he was reminded of the multiple teachings of Jesus when he exhorted his uh, disciples because they were arguing amongst themselves which of them was the greatest. In fact, uh, apparently they had this argument multiple times. Uh, throughout uh, those few years with Jesus. And Jesus needed to remind them that their perspective was a worldly one 
of what true humility and what true greatness was, at least in God's perspective. Peter says, you're thinking like the world. The world determines greatness by how many people serve us. But Jesus reminded them to be humble before the Lord, that true greatness in a heavenly perspective is measured by how many people we serve. Or perhaps Peter was reminded of that uh, last Passover just hours before his death when they went into the upper room and the host left a, a basin and a towel so that uh, their feet could be washed, which was the job of the household servant. And each of the disciples passed uh, this basin and towel. They would not lower themselves into such humility by washing the feet of the others and it took Jesus to show them what the example and the pattern of humility was as he washed their feet. Or perhaps Peter was reminded of the story that Jesus told of the wedding feast when a man walked into the uh, festivities and took a seat in a prominent place and then someone else entered uh, the wedding of a, of a higher, more distinguished place, and the host had to go to that first gentleman and say, please remove yourself and, and sit in another place as someone more important than you have ha has arrived. And shamefully, that first person would uh, meander back into a lowly place, uh, no, no doubt uh, embarrassed. And Jesus said, instead, take the position of going and sitting in the last place, and then the host will come up to you and say, friend, come and sit higher. The moral of the story being that Jesus said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So with these flood of memories, uh, Peter writes that they need to humble themselves in their relationship to one another, and to do that first requires them to be humble before the Lord. Now, he points out that the, uh, the reason for their humility was not merely the pattern that Jesus established for them, but also the promise of future exaltation. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. And we'll get to that uh, verse in just a moment. But Peter first says, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Did you, did you hear those words? At the proper time, God may exalt you. Now that uh, carries with us... Um, kind of the bad news and good news situation. I don't know if you're a, a bad news first person. I, I tend to be a bad news first person. Uh, but uh, Peter, first of all, mentions the, the good news that future exaltation awaits. But then sort of the not as good news is at the proper time. At the proper time. Well, I'd prefer it to be today, Lord, if possible. But the context makes it uh, rather clear that more times than not, that exaltation that Peter's referring to is in the next life. In fact, in verse 4, um, Peter already writes, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, in this life, 
we have cares. Amen? Anybody want to say amen? Yeah, we're not in heaven yet, right? And sometimes we get the idea that because we are followers of Jesus, that life is always downhill with the wind at our back. And I don't know about you, but I've discovered that in my Christian experience that I have had a more stressful situations, more trials and more difficulties as a believer. And the joy and the promise that we have is not that God will remove those things from us, but God through his grace and strength and power and enablement will go through those difficulties with us and that we can lean on him and depend on him. And that's what he uh, indicates actually in the very next verse. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now sometimes we distinguish verse 7 from verse 6. We see it as a separate thought. But actually the, the Greek grammar indicates that uh, the idea of casting is related to the previous verse of being humble before the Lord. In other words, we have two options with our cares and with our anxieties. Option one is we can carry them. Option two is we could cast them. Now, if we carry them, basically what Peter is saying is we are not humble under the mighty hand of God because the opposite of humility is pride. We saw that in uh, verses 4 and 5 when he quotes the proverb where he compares uh, pride as the very opposite of the spirit of humility that they're to, to walk with. So he says if you're going to carry your anxieties, basically that's the prideful approach because basically what you're saying is that God is not worthy of your trust. God is not worthy to carry those burdens and to take your anxieties upon his own shoulders. Listen, God never places too light a load on too, or too heavy a load on too light a shoulder. And so Peter says, instead of uh, acting prideful by carrying your own anxieties, he said to cast them upon the Lord. And why? For these four amazing words, God cares for you. Think about that. Casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Now, this was a revolutionary uh, concept for me as, as a new believer. It, it may surprise you as I stand before you this morning uh, with all outward appearance as the epitome of self-confidence and, uh, and security and uh, all the other positive things that, that come to your mind. <laughs> but it may surprise you to discover that before I knew Jesus as my Savior, I was one of the great warriors of my generation. I truly was. In fact, my second grade teacher once gave me a plaque that said, don't just sit there, worry. <laughs> In fact, I was a worry minor at my time at Villanova. And so the idea of casting my cares on the Lord 
my anxieties on the Lord because he cares for me uh, was such a liberating truth. And sometimes I'm tempted still, even after sometimes I'll give them to the Lord, sometimes very in a sneaky manner, I, I turn and, and as I turn and walk away, I sort of put my hand out, reach for them, take them back and put them in my back pocket. So it's a matter of continually transferring and, and casting. You could carry them yourself or you could cast them. But I have to tell you a story. As bad as I was, I wasn't as bad as one other fellow that I knew who had this constant fear and heaviness to him. And it was, it was just contagious. You didn't want to be around this person. You ever know people like that? They, they just have this heavy spirit to them. They complain about everything. They fret about everything. This one fellow was fearful and fretful and anxious about everything. He was anxious about his kids. He was anxious about his job. He was anxious about his retirement, his future. Uh, and, and nobody wanted to be around him because there was this just heavy spirit. One day he comes into work. He's a changed person. He's lighthearted. He's carefree. And finally somebody said to him, what got into you? You're a different person. He says, yeah, isn't it something? He said, I hired a professional worrier. <laughs> he said, he takes all my cares, all my anxieties. He says, I, I don't have a care in the world now. And the person said to him, are you serious? He says, oh, yeah. He says, it's the greatest thing. He's, he said, I, I just don't worry about a thing. And the person asked him, he says, well, what do you pay this guy? And he goes, well, he does get a hefty salary. He makes $300,000 a year. And his friend said, how in the world can you afford that? He shrugged his shoulders and said, that's his worry. <laughs> Listen, Peter says that there is a professional worrier who wants to take our cares and anxieties, and he could take them upon his shoulders because he is a lot stronger than we are. And guess what? He doesn't charge in a hefty salary either. He does it because of four words. He cares for you. So time is, uh, is moving on. Let's, let's look at the second principle we see in verses 8 and 9. First, he says, be humble knowing that God cares for you. Secondly, in verses 8 and 9, he says, be watchful, knowing how to defend against the devil. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be watchful, knowing how to defend against the devil. Be sober-minded, Peter writes. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be humble, knowing that he cares for you. Be watchful, knowing how to defend against the devil. So he begins telling us to be vigilant, be sober-minded, be watchful, be on the alert. Brothers and sisters, we are involved in a daily, spiritual, invisible war. 
And if we think we're not, that is probably a pretty good indication that we're not doing very well as a soldier in this war. Notice the way Peter describes our enemy. First, he says, your adversary, your adversary. And when Peter uses that word, he, he transports his, his readers into a courtroom. The, the word adversary was sometimes used as a uh, prosecuting attorney. So in a sense, Peter is, is taking us into a court of law where our adversary is, is prosecuting the case against us. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation uh, declares that he is the accuser, the devil, that he is the accuser of the brethren. Then Peter refers to him, your adversary, the devil. The devil, uh, by using that term, Peter says what his approach is. Basically, the word devil means slanderer. So what we have in this courtroom is the devil standing before God, in a sense, bringing a case against us because of our sin and because of our guilt. And his case is a powerful one. Because as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we are by nature children of wrath. But there's good news. There's good news because even as was mentioned in the first part of the service, we have, according to John in 1 John chapter 2, we have an advocate, another legal term. We have a defense attorney that stands before us to our heavenly father who pleads our case. Amen? And that defense attorney is Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's the way John describes him in First uh, John chapter 2 and verse 1. Jesus Christ himself, the righteous one, stands before our Heavenly Father as our advocate, as our defense attorney, and though we are declared guilty, Jesus said, Father, I've bought him with my blood. Father, she is forgiven by my blood. All that you have given unto me, Father, you will in no wise take back. We have the security, not because of, listen, who we are, but because of whose we are. We belong to him. And Jesus Christ, the righteous, uh, justifies us. And the Bible declares that we are now clothed in his righteousness. So when we stand before God, he doesn't see me as Steve Teco, sinner, but he sees me through Christ-lensed glasses stained crimson by his blood. And he sees Christ in me, and that is my hope and glory. The very righteousness of Christ is credited to my spiritual bank account. And we can stand before God knowing that future exaltation awaits us, again, not because of what we've done, but because of the work of our advocate, even Jesus. That's what it means, by the way, to be justified. To be justified means that God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. But it's more than that. That's the negative side of it. The positive side of it is, and always done that which was right. I have been justified and that means before God, God looks at me just as if I'd never sinned. 
and always done that which was right. And some of the old Christian hymns that you may remember, they, they cover this theme so beautifully. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. Listen, the devil may have lost you for eternity, but he will seek to neutralize you. He will seek to shame the name of Christ through you. And in this context, that means you want to carry your own anxieties and cares rather than to cast them on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he gives us some additional uh, advice on how to deal with the slanderer, our adversary. And I'm going to share very uh, quickly with you the three R's. First, respect him. Respect him. Be sober-minded, Peter writes. Secondly, recognize him. Be aware of his tactics. Be aware of your weak areas and know that that's where, where Satan will attack. And then thirdly, resist him. Resist him, verse 9. And how do we do that? Well, once again, Jesus provides a pattern. Jesus resisted him by standing firm on the word in Matthew chapter 4. Paul says we can resist him by putting on our armor of God. James in chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, there's more that we could say, but um, we need to move on very quickly. Next time we do a doctrine class and we do uh, the, the, perhaps the doctrine of sin, we could discuss more along these lines. By the way, I, I wanted to share with you that when we were talking about the doctrine class, the elders unanimously, and this is really, I wanted to share this by way of an encouragement because it was such a blessing to me. The elders unanimously decided that when we do teach on the doctrine of sin, they said that I was the most qualified to do it. <laughs> and it's, it's really to have the respect of your brothers is, what? Well, let's, let's move on. Uh, be humble, knowing that God cares for you. Be watchful, knowing how to defend against the devil, and lastly, be encouraged knowing your hope and future glory in Christ. In verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory. Wow. After you have suffered a little while, that's the encouragement. The suffering, it's temporal. It's short-termed. But his eternal glory is, is everlasting. And what a blessing that is. But we just uh, are not uh, held helpless uh, until that time. We are, in fact, uh, given um, some assistance as we continue to fight against the schemes of the devil, and we are confirmed in God's great love for us. Uh, we see this in Verse 10, uh, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, 
and establish you. Very quickly, very quick, quickly. Restore means to uh, re repair. It was a medical term. It was used in Matthew 4, for example, as uh, Peter uh, restored the nets that were damaged. So the idea of to restore is to equip, to, to fix, to repair. Uh, God will also confirm. He will confirm to fix firmly, to set fast. God will also strengthen us. He does that by the power of the Holy Spirit who, uh, working with our own sense of yieldedness, can yield to righteousness and say no to sin. And then lastly, he will establish you. That is to say, he will lay a foundation that will withstand the storms uh, that, uh, because your house is built upon the rock. And then uh, lastly, uh, as if to give a benediction and a final amen to the section in verse 11, he says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. To him be the dominion. That word is only used of God in the New Testament. And basically, Peter is saying, listen, what I've said to you, you could take it to the bank. What I said to you, you can believe it because it speaks of his control, his mastery, his ultimate authority. So with those three encouragements to his readers, he concludes by saying, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, he, uh, has written to you. Apparently Silvanus was the one that um, listened to Peter's dictation. He recorded this. Uh, he said, but uh, Sylvanus also speaks of this true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Then he gives greetings from two individuals. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. We don't know who the she was. Some scholars believe it was a reference to the church. Others see it as uh, an individual. Uh, really doesn't matter. But greetings were sent to them through these individuals, uh, as well as through Mark, my son. Mark is John Mark, the, the gospel writer Mark, who was his Peter's spiritual son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. That was a kind of a cultural expression. Men kissed men, women kissed women, uh, kind of the equivalent to our shaking hands today. Uh, we can continue to shake hands. Don't tell Dr. Fauci. Um, <laughs> but um, that's basically the, the cultural equivalent for us today. And then Peter ends with this. Peace to all who are in Christ. So if you understand this wonderful truth that Peter communicates by way of conclusion of this book and how we can go through those difficult times of, of trial and persecution and, and submission and, and mutual humiliation one toward another. He said, if you get through this with full knowledge of the future exaltation and glory that God will provide to you, you could go through these things with the peace of God that surpasses comprehension. And that's how he ends this uh, beautiful letter with an amen that encourages us that we cannot merely survive, but we can flourish because of the future glory that's ahead of us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for the opportunity to cast our cares on you.
amazingly, Lord, because you care for us. And so we do that realizing that uh, you could handle whatever cares we have far better than, than we could. We recognize, too, Lord, that the way the uh, enemy works is to accuse us, Lord, and to um, question uh, your ability to handle our uh, cares and anxieties and instead will tempt us to, to carry them ourselves, thinking that um, uh, somehow we can do a better job of it. Lord, remind us of his tactics. Remind us, Lord, that uh, when he points his lone, long bony finger at us, declaring us guilty, guilty and unworthy, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Thank you for the righteousness, Lord, that he uh, clothes us with, uh, the righteousness because of who he is, Lord. And we thank you again for uh, the opportunity just to walk this life with you and to cast all our cares on you because you care for us. So let's um, just take a few moments at our tables before we conclude. There's some discussion questions. Uh, maybe you could take a few moments and, and uh, address maybe a few of these questions, uh, and uh, perhaps that will create some further discussion on your ride home and once you get home. Uh, and then uh, I'll close in prayer in just a few moments.